Look, I've got to have him. It's a present for my son for Christmas. It's exactly what I've been looking for, and I've been everywhere. I'll give you $200. That's $200. I'm sorry. Mogwai, not for sale. I thought you said everything at your grandfather's store was for sale. Grandfather! With Mokwai comes much responsibility. I cannot sell him at any price. Wait outside a moment. I'll be right out. Just go. Mr. Here it is. Oh, right. What about your grandfather? Look at what he said. He's crazy. We need the money. Now, come on. You want it or not? I want it. Look, mister. There's three rules you've got to follow. Yeah, what kind of rules? Keep him out of the light. He hates bright light. Especially sunlight. It'll kill him. And keep him away from water. Don't get him wet. But the most important rule, the rule you can never forget, no matter how much he cries, no matter how much he begs, never, never feed him after midnight. You got it? Sure, kid, whatever you say. Hey, listen, thanks, and have a merry Christmas. This is episode 29, the Christmas episode, and tonight I'm here with Mark. Hey. I'm Zeb, and we've got Jonathan Pajot back with us. Jonathan was our first guest and still the star of our most popular episode ever, and we're really happy to have him back to talk about a surprising, to some maybe, Christmas movie, Gremlins. How are you doing, Jonathan? I'm doing great. I'm doing great. It was a great idea that you mentioned Gremlins. I was really surprised when I got the message to say, to ask me if I wanted to talk about Gremlins. I thought, why <laughs> do they want to talk about Gremlins? <laughs> Is it a movie you'd seen before? Well, it's weird because I have a very strange story about Gremlins. The, the movie came out when I was nine years old. And I begged my parents to see it when it came out in the theater. And my parents refused. My father was a pastor at that time. And he thought nine years old was a bit young to see such a movie. So they, so they refused. And I kept insisting and insisting and insisting. And finally, one time I was walking through the store with them and, uh, I saw the novelization of the movie, like on the shelf. <laughs> I was nine years old and I told my parents, well, can I at least read the book? And my parents, I never read a novel at nine years old. Like I never <laughs> read like a full novel. So my parents said, you know, whatever, fine. If you buy it, you can read it. They didn't think I would. So I bought Gremlins and I read the whole thing when I was nine years old. So it was like the first novel I ever read was Gremlins. <laughs> and how was it? <laughs> I don't, I don't remember much of it. Yeah. All I remember is that it was different from the movie. Finally, when I saw the movie, I realized that the, the, the novel was different from the movie. So, so I didn't remember much of the movie. And then when you mentioned it, I thought, okay, well, I'll give it a try. I'll watch it. And as I was watching it, I realized it was a masterpiece of, cosmological symbolism 
<laughs> that's definitely what they were going for. So that's it's right. good I that they that, hit the mark. Yeah, I think that's what they were doing. I think they're trying to start a new religion or something. <laughs> well, it's really funny you say that. I tweeted out a while ago that the nerdiest thing that I've ever done was when I was maybe 11 or 12 and Gremlins 2 came out. I didn't get to see the movie, but I actually bought the novelization from our elementary school book fair. That's hilarious. That's too myself. That's hilarious. You have a similar story than yeah. I, as I do. That yeah, yeah funny. No, I actually did. My parents, for some reason, took me to see Gremlins one in the theater, even though I was only six. Which uh, I watched it again this week with my kids, and it was <laughs> a little rough for a young age. Definitely. Well, there's a few like the scenes in the house with the mother and the yeah. knife, like when she goes yeah. for the. That's a pretty intense scene. That's a pretty intense scene. Yeah. Yeah. Not sure. I think. With my kids, maybe my twelve-year-old, but not not the not my younger one. <laughs> <laughs> Although tonight, uh, my my littlest kid was pretending to be uh, Gizmo the whole night and insisted that I call him Gizmo and carry him around <laughs> and put him in bed as Gizmo. <laughs> so he remembered the, the positive part of it. I think. That's Just don't feed him after midnight, I guess. Yeah. Zeb, I think I think Kent is here. Do you want to see if you can add him? Oh yeah, yeah. And for our listeners who maybe haven't seen the movie or haven't seen it since they were six or nine, I'll just recap the plot very quickly. Um, there's a guy who's an inventor who's got a, like a maybe 20-year-old son, and he's sort of a failed or bumbling inventor. He decides to buy his kid a Christmas present at some weird little curio shop in Chinatown, and he stumbles upon this odd little creature that looks kind of like a f tiny little furry monkey in there in a cage and the old Chinese man who runs the store won't sell it to him. But the Chinese man's grandson or something, this little boy who lives there sneaks out with it and sells it to the, the guy because they need the money. So he, and he gives them three rules. You can't feed the, the creature after midnight. You can't get it wet and you can't expose it to bright light or it'll die. And the dad gives it to his son and Basically, the rest of the movie is the consequences of them breaking the rules, which include getting it wet causes him to multiply. Feeding it after midnight causes them to turn in from a little uh, furry monkey-looking thing into a wicked reptilian uh, gargoyle-looking thing that is murderous. And the bright light does, in fact, kill it. So in the end, it's this uh, adventure of the 20-year-old the kid trying to save his, his small bucolic town from this rampage of uh, wicked gargoyles, basically the plot. And then at the very end, the Chinese man comes back and takes the little furry creature whose name is Gizmo away because they haven't been responsible guardians of it. Is that about get the, the basics? I guess that, that's, yeah, I think that gets the basics of it pretty well. <laughs> so what was what did you see of cosmic significance in this story, Jonathan? Well, there's a last question quite a bit that the first thing to understand the cosmic significance of the movie is to understand that that Christmas is also uh, Saturnalia. If you if you understand that, then um, a lot of the symbolism of the movie starts to make sense. So the so the if you, symbolically, let's say, I mean, obviously, the, the solstice doesn't happen on the 24th, but the, the symbolically, the solstice is on the 24th. Which, the idea is that the 24th is the shortest day. It's, this day. it's the day that the sun is the lowest in the sky. 
And so it's kind of as if this, you see, you can imagine the sun kind of going down and down and down during the year, and then it comes to its lowest point. And the question is, is it going to come back? Is it, is it going to come back up or is it just going to keep going down into, into darkness and into death? And so in, in, uh, in Roman times, there was during, during the, the last part of the, the, the cycle of the sun, they had the Saturnalia, which was basically a huge carnival of inversion and excess. And so excess and all, you know, we know the stories of all the crazy sexual excesses, but also food and, and, uh, dressing up and, um, and, uh, you know, breaking the rules of society and, and, uh, inversion, all the carnival, all the carnival, uh, times, let's say. So it makes sense that the carnival is at the end of the cycle. So no matter how you imagine the cycle in different cultures, the carnival is always at the end because it, that's the time when the upside down manifests itself. That is, the, it's like the rules have played themselves out, like the normal world has played itself out. And now the only thing left is for uh, uh, an inverted version of it, which kind of marks the limit of something and marks the end. And then it can start again. And so, for example, in Judaism, uh, that's Purim, and it's related to the story of, uh, of Esther and her marrying a foreigner. And, uh, and so, and, and the Jews will have, you know, the crazy ratchets and all this and some, some crazy traditions of like drinking and spinning until you fall down and, you know, just inverted, inverted, uh, uh, inverted behavior. And so, in Christianity, we don't have the we don't have our carnival at that time. Our carnival is usually in the springtime. It, it can be in different times. The Jews have it in the fall. Um, but in this Christmas story, there is a sense of this like impending doom uh, in the story of the massacre of the innocents that happens, you know, before Christmas. And you, so you have this sense of all these children's getting massacred, massacred, massacred. And the idea is, is, is it going to destroy the entire generation is are there going to be people let's say are there going to be people left right because he just kills all the babies and so you think that's it at the end the world is over when you start killing the babies uh and but then out of that comes the one child that will save everybody you know either it's moses in the story of the pharaoh's killing of the innocent or it's christ in in uh in the story of uh of christmas where herod is killing the innocents so you can get the sense of this descent into kind of chaos and inversion or death or all that stuff. And then finally, uh, the sun comes out. And so obviously it makes sense that during that time of, of descent into darkness, let's say, is the time for monsters. Um, and we have to understand the monster also as darkness in the sense of what's not defined, what's undefined. And so this, so you, you see the father, he goes into a foreign, uh, neighborhood. He goes into Chinatown and then he descends into this cave, right? He descends down into the basement of this shop, which doesn't look like a shop, but it's this, this strange cave of wonders where he's, you know, he's in another world. He's in a foreign land, let's say. He's not really, I mean, he's in Chinatown, but the imagery that there is used and he's getting this monster from a foreigner. And that's important in the stories of, uh, of, uh, of carnival. The, the idea of the foreigner and the carnival, like the idea of Esther marrying a foreigner is important in, in Purim. This idea of joining yourself with what's indeterminate, which was something you don't know what it is. And, and it, that's kind of crystallized in the interpretation of the, of this monster that he gets because he names the monster Gizmo. 
And that's what a gizmo is. A gizmo is, is an undefined thing. It's something that isn't defined. We don't know what a, a gizmo is something that I don't know what it is. And so I just give it a name. It's basically saying it's a question mark. What is it? I don't know. And so, and, and that has to do also with the idea of, of something that's foreign. Uh, and so the rules, what the, the thing about the rules that are interesting is that you can have rules about something, but if you don't know the gravity of the consequences, those rules are nothing. And so that, 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 that's why the rules in that, in that context are so strange. It's as if, you know, you meet a foreign person and that person tells you, uh, you know, don't walk, don't walk in this room without you, with your shoes on. And it's like, okay, well, is it, is, can't I walk with, with my shoes on because they don't want the floor to get dirty? Or maybe I can't walk with my shoes on because it's like the, it's like a sacred room and I'm going to be, you know, insulting their God. Like you don't know because you, you don't understand that culture. You don't understand the foreignness of it. And so it's, it's, it's unknown. And so the, the, the rules are there and you can see that they don't take, they take them seriously enough to say like, well, don't do it. They don't understand that it's going to cause the destruction of their world, basically, if they don't if they don't follow those rules. Okay, uh, so that's so that's the basic kind of setup. Now, what's another thing that's important in the setup is the illegitimacy of the relationship. That the that Gizmo, the Mogwai, is uh, is an Ill, is illegitimately gotten. That is, he he gets it, but he's not supposed to have it. Right. It's a it's a it's an object that isn't his really. Right. It's it's a foreign object in his house. But it, it's the emphasis on the fact that it's foreign is also the fact that it's illegitimate. He's not supposed to. He he gets it through. He knows like the father knows this. The, the child says it like you want it or not, because the father knows that the, the old man didn't want to sell it. And he's like, OK, yeah, I want it. He gives him the money, but he knows he's not supposed to have it. So all of that kind of sets up the uh, the. Uh, the the let's say the descent of the of the um of the son and so it's also the emphasis is also there on the father who's a who's a uh who's a bumbling idiot and who's a failure and so the the failing father is also the son that's going down like the son that's kind of going down into darkness and the world is upside down in the in that story too because there's a play there's some places where they suggest that it's actually billy the son who is supporting his father and so it's not the father who's supporting the family. The son is the one who's supporting the family. And he he's also creating things that don't work. And that's really important in the sense that you have to understand chaos or darkness or the monster as an interruption of order. And so that's basically like the whole movie is about an interruption of order. You have a world that's supposed to work and it's the emphasis is on technology. So the cars the uh the machines there's constantly these machines and they're breaking down so they're breaking down because the father is a failure but they're also breaking down because of this monster that's there and and there's a relationship between the failure of a father and the and the uh th this this monster that is that is dangerous but at first at first the thing is the thing about gizmo is that at first he's not he's kind of benign and that's that's like it's the same thing with the notion of what is, you know, something that's foreign is not bad in itself. And so it's, it's only bad if we, if it becomes like the projection of our, of our, um, inverted thinking or our, you know, like our, our, our passions are, you know, if, if we, uh, I was give you this idea of a, of an African statuette where the African statuettes came to Europe 
And in an African context, they were seen as legitimizing uh, images that were there to bolster the identity of a tribe or bolster their, their natural practices. But when they come to uh, Europe, people see in them monsters and see them like this wild sexual desire or see in them their own like uh, dysfunctional passions, let's say. And so when they break the rules, you know, that's when the monster starts to uh, starts to uh, manifest itself as a as a real, you know, as the real Saturnalia, as the real kind of inverted, crazy, uh, you know, monstrous character. I mean, yeah, certainly like the sort of central theme of the, the film is, you know, the sort of the terrifying, unknowable other, this, you know, foreign force that um, whether you want to code it as, you know, specifically American technology or Western technology or whatever else is, you know, just unable to, unable, you know, to compete against, you know, there's all these broken down gadgets. There's a, the neighbor who, you know, fought in World War II. Um, and if I remember right, that's actually where, like, we started calling these things, like, this idea of, like, gremlins. Like, obviously, you know, like, these small monsters goes way back. But, like, gremlins in the machines, like, causing airplanes to break down. Like, that was, like, a World War II thing. Mm -hmm. um, and so, like, the, uh, the neighbor is always very paranoid of, like, gremlins living in his machines, causing them to break down. He doesn't like that Billy has a foreign car. He wants Billy to have, you know, like, a good, strong american reliable car um like his plow which you know ultimately the the plow is what you know turns on him um and so yeah i mean from the the father's bumbling incompetence through the machines through you know sort of all like the understand understood order all of that is kind of you know revealed to be you know powerless in in the face of this it's not there, you know, the, the gremlins are not just evil in like a way that we understand, like they fully understand how the culture of this town works. They yeah. recognize, you know, like they love movies. They know how to manipulate electricity. They, you know, they, they instantly grasp how to do all this stuff. Yeah, they're literate. They're literate. I mean, and I mean, sometimes like they're, you know, violent. They're sometimes they're violent. Sometimes they're just kind of like tricksters. Yeah. Who are just, you know, like, you know, there's, it's just this overpowering force um, that cannot be, you know, understood or reasoned with. And I think, you know, especially in the context of this came out in 1984, um, you know, America had the Soviet influence is waning. There's also the rise of, um, you know, nations like Japan, um, of like Japanese technology became, you know, a, a big thing. And, you know, America trying to compete to keep up with, um, you know, Japanese technology. I mean, that was like a, you know, obsession of the American business world in the the 80s and 80s and 90s. Um, so I hardly think that, you know, the, the theme of this movie is coincidental. No, it's definitely not. Um, and when the time it came yeah. out. And so the, What's what's kind of strange, yeah. What's kind of strange is that the, uh, the let's say the notion of the I really kind of what I kind of like about it, and what I think is it saves it is that the idea that the the foreign thing is a monster, like it's dangerous, but it's only it's only dangerous if you don't if you don't interact with it properly. Mm -hmm. 
because in a way the old Chinese man is rep really represented as this kind of wise, you know, the kind of cliche of the wise Eastern, you know, right. sage or whatever. Um, but if you, if you're not able to, to, uh, to deal with it properly, then, uh, then everything goes awry. The, 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 um, the Chinese man presents it at the end. He seems to give a kind of key to what the gremlins are supposed to mean, at least in the more explicit version of the, of the movie. He, it seems to be that they're supposed to represent a kind of force of nature. Cause at the very end of the movie, he says something like, you're not ready for the Mogwai. You know, mm. you, I don't remember what it is. Something like you've done with you, you've done to it what you've done with all the other, all of other nature's you know, resources or secrets or whatever, yeah, something, yeah. something like that. I warned you, with Mokwai comes much responsibility, but you didn't listen, and you see what happens. I, but I didn't mean it. You do with Mokwai what your society has done with all of nature's gifts. You do not understand. You are not ready. Uh, but it it, it kind of works if you see it as like like raw nature, like the idea of a, of kind of raw chaotic nature that hasn't been ordered by civilization. Uh, then maybe it kind of works. But one of the interesting things is that the father leaves like just before Christmas, which is which is kind of weird because the this father who leaves is also has to do with this idea of the the father who's in, who's incompetent. And also the idea of the sun that's going away, like light is going away and light is diminishing. Um, and so the uh, finally, the you know, they break the rules and they break the rules through two ways. Right. There's an accident and then there's trickery, which is two. There are, those are two uh, examples of chaos basically presenting themselves. Accident is obviously chaos in itself. You know, it's something that's not planned that happens. Uh, and then trickery is a more mischievous version of, of chaos. Um, but then it, that plays itself out afterwards once the, the gremlins appear. And then the gremlins, they, um, they really become, they really do become the force of, of a Saturnalia and, the, and Carnival once they're there because they, they, they play out every caricature you can imagine. Like they take all these types of human beings and then they they create caricatures of them. The scene in the bar is really <laughs> the strongest scene. Yeah. Because there you see like all the excesses of of vice kind of portrayed in caricatures. There's you know and and they they it's so over the top. You know like they're drinking and they're killing each other and and you know and they're uh, and there's all this kind of there's like a kind of a some some of them look like kind of hookers and others you know look like you know the lonely. Then there's a criminal with a ski mask on. Uh -huh. So they just kind of line them up like every Let's single. Poker. <laughs> exactly. They're playing. Yeah, they're gambling. There you go. That's another <laughs> image of a, of a carnival in Saturnalia. And so they take all the all the excesses and the vices of, let's say, society, and then they put them on acid. Like they just you know, they put them on speed and, and, and they're they're on uh, they're excessive. So all of that kind of comes together. And then also the idea of interrupting order in the sense of they're constantly shown breaking uh, or intervening in machines. You know, they're cutting the lines of brakes and they're <clears throat> playing in the, the electricity to kill uh, the, the Mrs. What's her name? Mrs. Deagle or whatever. Um, and so they, they're, they're really acting as an interruption in the normal procedure, the normal procedure of society. 
Um, um, yeah, go ahead. Oh, sorry. This is actually a, a point that you were, you were making earlier that I, I maybe wanted to challenge you on. We are talking about like, you know, proper ways of interacting with these monsters and the consequences um, of failing to do so. Uh, you know, there's a very sharp divide between Gizmo and the other Mogwai turned gremlins. Yeah. You know, I, I noticed this in the, um, cause I actually, I watched it twice recently cause I never seen it. It came up a couple months ago. So I watched it and I watched it again for this <laughs> and it struck me both times. Like they treat Gizmo so badly. Yeah. Like they're constantly, like they forget, you know, they constantly flash him with lights by mistake. Like they knock him over into the trash can by accident <laughs> a couple of times. Like, and he, I mean, he's just constantly, you know, very, you know, forgiving and patient with these people, you know, that he met out of nowhere. Um, and like he just immediately takes to them. He's very sweet, very kind to them. Um, it didn't really set the alarm bells off in my head until I'm trying to find my notes until later on in the movie where he's actually waving an American flag. Yeah. And yeah, I was like, yeah, well, okay, sorry. So that, yeah. So this, yeah, this is the subtlety of this is blown out of the water at this point. <laughs> like he's, he's, you know, for one reason or another, he's, you know, the, the integrated foreigner. That's who he yes, is. I mean, he <laughs> the foreigner, is. Like, the foreigner is integrated into society. It doesn't matter how badly <laughs> they treat him. He loves them and he will, you know, he, he will absolutely always be loyal to them. And conversely, in a really weird sort of way, like there is zero solidarity between Gizmo and the other, you know, both when they're Mogwai and then when they turn into gremlins, like those are two forces that hate each other in that movie. Yeah. yeah. Like you would think either Gizmo would be like, all right, these humans, they're incredibly dumb. They constantly hurt me. They, you know, took me out of my other life. I don't, you know, what, know <laughs> what's going on. And like, maybe, you know, I, you know, stand with like these other, these other Mogwai. No, that's, you know, we're definitely not doing that. And then the other Mogwai, like they hate Gizmo. They know, they know who he is. I think they actually even call him Gizmo at some point. Yeah. yeah. So it's yeah. You know, like, they must know that like, they come from him in some sort of way, but you know, they, they see him as, yeah, fully, you know, fully integrated with, uh, with the human, with human society. Well, see it this way. How about you say, I, I tended to see in terms of the monster and in terms of the story, I had a, I had like an ascetic interpretation of it, like a, like a monk's interpretation of it. And so see it this way, see, see it as the idea of thoughts. And so let's say you have a, a thought and, and the, and the thought comes to you from the outside. It's a, the thought that floats in from the outside. And there's nothing wrong with that thought. Let's say that thought is, you know, I'm hungry. That that thought is a good thought. I mean, it's there's nothing wrong about that thought. Now, what happens with that thought is that if you let it grow, you know, let's say in the dark waters, like in the dark places, if you let that thought grow, then that thought can become I'm hungry all the time or I'm hungry chocolate all the time or maybe i want you know five beers or maybe you know that that thought can multiply into thoughts that will take over and will be uh mm. excessive and 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 be uh and so it's like the idea of of a of of a that is that things in themselves aren't bad whatever they are new things new things aren't bad you know whatever you encounter in the world it's new and unknown there's nothing bad in itself in the world but if you, let's say, if you break the rules or if you, if you, if you misuse them, then they can become the, uh, the support for, for excess, for passions, for, uh, for, for sins or, or whatever. And so it's as if 
let's say Magua is the first, that first thought, which is ambivalent, which is good. It's not bad. But then once you, once you interact with it in the wrong way, then it gives birth to these other thoughts that then are dangerous. And if you keep going, then, and if you feed it after midnight, which is the, the idea of the, the three rules are actually very powerful because the three rules are, are, are well set up. You have one rule for it to multiply, which is water. And so this idea of going down, right? So going down into the waters, this notion of, of the lower part. And then the, the idea is that these, these dark things, these kind of ambiguous things, if you put them in the sunlight, then they die. I mean, and that's just true. If you take an ambiguous thing and you shine light mm. on it, it becomes defined and it's not an ambiguous thing anymore. It's gone. Uh, and then finally, feeding it after midnight is relating it to the solstice because midnight in the day is the equivalent to the solstice in the year. It's the lowest part of the sun. It's the lowest uh, part of the cycle. And so if you feed it at that time, then it's, that's when all hell breaks loose. All hell breaks loose. And so there's a relationship between the three rules, the idea of the solstice of the sun kind of coming down and then the day with the sun coming down. So all of that is, that's why I said it's a very, it's a nice cosmic little hmm. puzzle. Uh, and so that's kind of how, that's kind of how I see it. But the, the, the where, the place where it really clicked for me in terms of all that coming together is in the story, is Kate's story of her, of her father's death. That story is, is that in terms of, of this symbolism, it's perfect because she talks about the father, Father Christmas. I, I'm saying that instead of Santa Claus, but I like Father Christmas because I like it, the idea that it's a father. So, so Father Christmas and her father, who's Father Christmas in this, in this situation, he comes down the chimney. Now, coming down the chimney, that's exactly the sun coming down. That's actually the sun going down into the pit, into the fire pit, okay? It's going down into the dark place. And so the question that I, I, I said is at the beginning is when that happens, if you think about it in terms, like terms of just human terms, when the sun is going down, 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 how do you know that it's going to come back? Like, how do you know that things are going to get better? How do you know that this, the days are going to get longer? And so in her story, she tells the story of Santa Claus, her father, coming down the chimney and then dying and not coming back. And so her story of her father dying is basically the whole situation of the movie, which is this descent into chaos, like this descent into darkness. And the question is, how are we going to solve this? And in the end, in the end of the movie basically is exactly what you would expect. The way to solve it is for the sun to come back. And so the sun comes back. You open the window. The sun comes in and the father arrives at the same time. Like Billy's father arrives at the same time. To kind of make sure you understand that this, 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 the father and the son are the same thing. And that's what destroys the, uh, the, uh, the gremlins. Uh, so anyways, that's what, that's kind of all of that is kind of why I, I felt like it was a, is a nice, a nice uh, constructed uh, cosmic uh, story. <laughs> no kidding. <laughs> oh, so what can? What did you think about the movie? Well, you, so I, I think maybe uh, Jonathan just answered the the question that um, was kind of on my mind, right? I, I the the remarkable. I mean, I, I did see quite a bit of profundity in um, these sort of three rules for caring for this Mogwai, right? There's the idea of um, 
darkness and light and water and uh, chaos and sort of the dark side of fecundity and stuff like that, right? But it was it, the resolution of the story to me, right? It seemed uh, was a little bit puzzling because it, it seemed to me that you had this nice sort of cosmological setup that was resolved more mostly through kind of like sta- slapstick uh, comedy, right? Like it's just sort of the the pitch of the movie is that kids like to see puppets do weird stuff, right? Um, but that's that's compelling. I mean, that's a pretty compelling reading. Um, but it was it was resolved. And of by, course, right. The sun, the sun comes back. But right. also, yeah. it, it it wasn't resolved by. It, it's funny that you think that it wasn't resolved by slapstick comedy. It was resolved by showing Gizmo riding in a car and solving the problem by driving a car in a way that's going to solve the problem. The right. whole movie is about cars breaking down. The whole movie is about order breaking down, and so right. Gizmo uses that trope and and use it and 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 kind of fixes it. So he's 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 in the car and he's driving and he comes and then he jumps. You know, I don't remember what happens. He jumps up and then he opens the trap door and uh, you know the gremlin dies from the sunlight. So it uh-huh. was a re- it, the whole thing is a return to uh, to order. And that's that was a greenhouse, wasn't it? Where that happened. Like the, That's right. So the the sun came out in the garden. They were back in the garden, and uh, the chaos was vanquished there. Yeah, I th- I think the nature and versus technology theme was a, I mean definitely a really big aspect of it here, and is exemplified in the continuum from the Mogwai to the Gremlin. You know, like you said, Jonathan, the the China, the old Chinese man when he comes to take the Mogwai back says that your society has treated the Mogwai like you treat all of nature's gifts. You, um, and with the Mogwai comes great responsibility, and they didn't mm-hmm. follow the rules. Yeah. Uh, and by not following the rules, the gremlins came out of the Mogwai. So, you know, we think. And I think you know what I think. I think it's not just that they didn't follow the rules. I think it's that they didn't perceive the importance of the rules. Right. Right. Like they didn't perceive the consequences of not following. The kind of deep, implicit rules of 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 nature, let's say. So you can imagine it as the idea of creating a nuclear weapon. It's like mm-hmm. when you, the idea of creating a nuclear weapon isn't just that you didn't follow the rules; is that you don't understand the meta rules. You don't understand that yes, you can follow. Let's say you could even follow the rules of of science and create this weapon, but you're breaking the meta rules because you're creating something that can destroy everything else. It's like yeah. you, you know, you're you don't understand the profundity of the of what you're dealing with. You don't understand how far it can go. And right, and so I mean, one of the to me that seeming seemingly odd traits of Gizmo is that he himself seems so hapless. Like he does not keep himself out of trouble, you know, or even with regard to these rules. It's really up to the humans to be the guardians, and the the Chinese man keeps him in a cage covered with a cloth to prevent him from accidentally getting wet or uh, eating food or anything. So he, Gizmo is like this the, the guileless. Um, he's got lots of potential, just as natural resources do, or nature in itself, but is not his own guardian. He requires some kind of guardian or stewardship, mm-hmm. and when humans don't serve that function, um, as we, as we've done with our technology the gremlins are the chaos of nature asserting itself within our technological society our technological uh, environment showing that that power is still there we have not mastered it 
and it will be our downfall if we don't learn to understand, like I said, understand it and respect it. Yeah, and also the the idea. I think one of the things that appears in the movie is also the the fragility of such a tightly a tight system. Like the fragility of a techno technological society <clears throat> is that things can break down. Not only things can break down, but the tools that we use uh, to make our lives easier can can exactly become our downfall <laughs> when they turn against us. So, yeah, Jonathan, I, I was wondering if you could. Um maybe help me understand one of the rules in particular. So I find the one about water really interesting um, because it's clearly not fluids. You know, you see them drinking alcohol, you see them drinking other drinks. Um, it's only pure water that seems to have this reproductive effect on them. So what, what do you think is the particular symbolism of water? Of the water there. Well, I mean, I think, I mean, water is, the, I mean, it, first of all, it's the basic, it's the basic liquid. And then second of all, it's, I mean, it's the ocean. It's the, it's the lake. It's the, it's the, it's the, uh, yeah, it's the, it's the symbol of, of fecundity, as was said earlier. It's the symbol of, of the mother. It's, it's, it's all that, you know, in the Bible, <clears throat> the earth is water before it's anything else. And so the primordial earth is water. Uh, that out of which all comes is water. It's where Leviathan lives, right? It's it's uh, yeah. Yeah, and it needs to be overcome, right? It's kind of uh, yeah, it's, but yeah. it has to be overcome. But it, it's also out of that out of which things uh, things things come up as right. well. So I mean, right. Christ yeah. tells Saint Peter to go, you know, to go to the to the water and to uh, reach in, and he gets a piece of gold out of the fish's mouth. And so mm. it's also that out of which it's it's that out of which everything comes. Uh, right. But if it's not properly united with, with, uh, with order, let's say, then it appears as these chaotic, undefined monsters. But if it's if it has that spark inside of it, um, then it's yeah, then it's the idea of the of the lost sheep or the fish that can be saved from the uh, from the outer darkness, let's say, or the chaos of the waters. So Zeb, you were uh, you were talking about kind of gizmos. I don't know. Um... It's kind of naive, right? Yeah. Were you suggesting by that that he was uh, like, I don't know, nature without a ruler or something like that? Is that right? Yeah, yeah. The kind of, um, what's the word? Like just nature in its raw state where it offers yeah. great power and possibility, but um, is, has no rule to itself in terms of purpose or principle. Hmm. And so I guess the risk there is that it, it, it slips back into um, – indeterminacy and chaos right like like we kind of um direct it towards aims without a kind of rational ruler or something like that it it, it it's liable to collapse back into chaos or something yeah i mean obviously in the movie that's what it seems to seems to be yeah, yeah. but i think it also shows it does show the idea that things are not think things things are not um good or bad in themselves that's kind of what i how i saw gizmo is that here's this undefined thing it's neutral i mean it's it's just there it's it, you know it, it's kind of it just does what you want it to do it's not it, it's pliable and it you know whatever and you know and obviously it's easy to influence you see that because at the end the the old man is kind of annoyed because that that they let him watch television because they're like okay <laughs> he picked up this bad habit um and so and so it's yeah so it's it's, it's this it's basically potentiality in general like this 
this kind of potentiality to go either way. Uh, but yeah, but if you misuse it, then watch out. I think the analogy <laughs> to nuclear power is is a good one. You know, the nuclear power in its essential state has always it's always there. You right. Know, we we discovered it a hundred years ago, but it was always there. And without understanding all of how it works and all of dangers associated with it, man has tried to utilize it in ways sometimes explicitly destructive and sometimes attempted to just take advantage of it. And we've seen the chaos that is part of it reassert itself in everything from, of course, the bomb to uh, Chernobyl or uh, the reactor in Japan after the tsunami. Yeah, definitely. I wonder though, with the uh, the television, um, so that that's obviously you know the the bad habit that um, that the family allows Gizmo to adapt that the uh, the wise old man scolds them for, but it's also um, it's mimicking what he saw on television that Gizmo is doing when he saves saves the day and you know defeats the the final gremlin. You know, it's like because the first thing he sees on television is uh, I think it's Speed Racer. Because in okay. the background of Billy's in the background of Billy's room, you see a poster, like a movie poster for Speed Racer, and I don't <laughs> know if that's the movie that they're wa- that he's watching. But the first thing Gizmo watches is some movie with racing cars, and you know it's like some forties, fifties. Um, I don't know which is like Cary Grant, uh, Gregory Peck. They all the same to me. Um, like it's one <laughs> of them, you know, like this very like you know, like romantic, incredibly American figure who where he like passionately kisses the leading lady and then goes off and races and wins the day. Um, And that's exactly what Gizmo is imitating when in the final scene, when he, you know, comes flying through the the store. Um, So, I mean, it is him doing what he learned from television that allows him to save the day. Yeah. Yeah. I didn't catch uh, uh, the poster for speed racer, but I caught uh, road warrior poster. Oh, was that what, was that what it was? Maybe, Maybe it was road warrior. Um, yeah, yeah, which is maybe even more interesting, right? Yeah, yeah, I think I think yeah. you're right. I think you're right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Do you think it's significant that the one person who's really able to stand up to the gremlins and wield technology against them is Billy's mom? Yeah, she's badass. Yeah, and then she's constantly <laughs> fighting with the stupid inventions that her husband has filled her house with. Yeah, but when she gets attacked by these murderous. Uh, monsters she microwaves them and blends them and is able to to actually wield technology against them and, and kind of turn the tables on them the only person in the movie basically who can do that other than that's true at gizmo, gizmo at the end yeah that's actually interesting i hadn't noticed that but i hadn't taken time to think about it that that she does exactly that she uses the technology that the gremlins are trying to subvert she's able to use it to uh because she uses all her tools like the yeah. mixer and the microwave and stuff to uh to get rid and the and the knife obviously uh, so that, yeah, that's true. That's what she does. That's interesting. So what is she then? I mean, I mean, I she's know. obviously the mother. Um, uh, <laughs> <laughs> is it Mary trampling the snake? Maybe, yeah. maybe, maybe. Well, maybe because she is also, because there's something about the idea of the undefined or the, or the, uh, the potentiality, which is related to femininity in general. And so maybe that's why as the as the mother as the feminine character she's able to uh to do that to do the same thing to subvert the normal use of those instruments but to do it in a way that pushes chaos away you know it's like you could you it so there maybe there's something about that that yeah something about that there too it'd be worth thinking about 
I, I can't remember if it was um, one of you guys or someone else I was talking to Gremlins about who sent this to me, but someone sent me um, one of the greatest film analysis threads I've ever seen on Twitter. It was specifically about the mother in that kitchen scene. And the the idea behind it was that what she's doing, she's actually, she's killing her husband when she's stabbing these gremlins. <laughs> oh my goodness. Because you, you, you see her constantly frustrated through this film. So like the first time you see her in the kitchen, she's watching, you know, while she's cooking dinner while her moron husband is out designing trying to sell the bathroom buddy or whatever um and you know she kind of she has the tv on in the kitchen like it's some like very like it's another it's like one of like these 40s 50s films and like you know it's another one of these like very like can do was that was it wonderful it's a wonderful life i'm not kidding these guys all look the same to me i think (laughs) 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 but she kind of like sighs wistfully like this like passionate kiss and then her husband comes home, and he's not like a bad guy, but he's just kind of like pathetic and useless. The loser, yeah. Um, and you know, ultimately, yeah, we we see you know all the technology break down and fail, and just out of nowhere, yeah, she snaps and goes from being you know a very quiet, passive, almost background character into this sort of like Rambo style, you know, stalking through the house, with two knives, hunting down you know these monsters that have invaded her her territory and just murdering them in the most brutal fashion. <laughs> um, and so, yes, I, I, I yeah. So some, someone, someone had the theory that this was, you know, kind of her acting out the frustration of her, you know, her husband's both absence and impotence. Um, yeah. Well, you could see, I think that the impotence for sure, or the failing order, I think if you see it that way, in the sense that the, that the husband is really, the idea of, of order or, you know, the masculine that's failed. And so, and the result of that is these machines that break down. And in the movie, the cause of the breakdown of the machines is framed as those gremlins. And so there's obviously, I mean, I guess you could see a relationship between that in a way that she's, if she's not killing her husband, she's at least killing all these, these, this breakdown that she's surrounded with all the time of this this uh incapacity to hold things together in terms of financially you know and in terms of uh of the actual machines that don't hold together and so it's like she's taking care of business and getting rid of those gremlins mm-hmm. you know so maybe that's maybe that's there's something there but they do have the father kind of return with the son at the end which is interesting so i don't know if he's supposed to but he doesn't seem to be any better than he was like you would ex- you would have hoped that he would have some kind of weird arc where he would have gotten better or something but he just <laughs> comes back with a dog maybe it's the dog coming back that's important and not the father who knows well that, there, there was that really that interesting line to me that the father mentions that uh you know he's very excited about the mogwai that these could replace the dog as the the family pet in america mm-hmm. and the dog you know obviously can understand it because there's that he had you know there's that comedic shot where the dog kind of tilts his head yeah yeah <laughs> but yeah i mean like that's again you know not just with technology, but like, you know, even, um, you know, our relationship with animals that this, this unknown, you know, Mogwai, um, I looked up, apparently it is just the Mandarin word for monster. Um, just shows up and subverts all of those and replaces all of those relationships. Hmm. Yeah. So I think, I, I think, I think that I've gone through my, uh, what I saw in Gremlins, I think that I've pretty much, pretty much uh, finished my uh, my. But I, I really appreciate, I really enjoyed watching it because 
it it uh, it really surprised me. It's, it was surprising that it ha- I had such a strange story with Gremlins when I was a kid, and then I watched it again, kind of just to to humor you guys, and then finally, <laughs> it was really it was really good. <laughs> Before we let you go, Jonathan, could you tell us? Um... About the, some of the stuff you've been doing this year since the last time we spoke to you. I, I know people, if they listen to our first episode, know you as an iconographer and a writer about things like this, symbology and mythology. But I know you've been re- getting really active on your YouTube channel and doing some pretty interesting stuff on there. Yeah. Well, what's been what's been very strange is I people started inviting me to give talks. <clears throat> and so I I started to travel and to give talks in different on different occasions. But what happened, which surprised me and I'd never expected, is that I all of a sudden had the attention of all these atheists. And so it was very odd. I was getting messages from atheists who were basically converting to Christianity and uh, asking me questions, asking me for advice, asking me to interpret things, uh, to to give my opinion on things. And so I, I thought, okay, well, maybe I need to do something about this. And so I started making YouTube videos first to put up my conferences that I had been giving and then to create content directly online. And the reaction has been really surprising. I don't have a huge following, but the people that follow me have been really active and I've been getting messages for, for not, it's not so bad anymore, but for months and months I was getting messages almost every day and it was always the same story. It was always the story of uh, someone who had become an atheist in college, kind of new atheist style. And then now they're rediscovering Christianity somehow. And they're asking me like, okay, so what do I do? Where, where should I go to church? Uh, and so it's been really fascinating. So I've, I've kind of decided to put more time into these YouTube videos. And I'm doing a mix of, of movie interpretation and kind of cultural interpretation to uh, – kind of attract a, a larger audience, but I'm also doing specifically interpretation of, of Christian symbolism. So I'll take uh, either a, a difficult concept in, in uh, tradition or in the scripture or a thread of symbolism, and then I'll give a, uh, I'll just do an interpretation of it. And I think people, what I've noticed is that what people, what's attracting people is not so much the argument of it. It's not so much the argument of this is what, you know, this is what you should believe. This is the truth. This is, you know, like some kind of apologetics. But people are attracted to the beauty and the patterns and the sense of it connecting to uh, to this cosmic, this cosmic pattern. So people are attracted to Christ even by his story and how his story is this this amazing, you know, coming together of all the Old Testament stories. And then it seems to me at least all of the ancient myths kind of coming together into one person and into one story. And so it's been very, it's been exciting and fascinating at the same time. That's awesome. Yeah. That's awesome. But I'm still carving. I I have to, I have to, I have to pay the bills. It's not, <laughs> I, I started a, I started a Patreon account and so people can, can support the videos if they want to, but, uh, but, but it's not, yeah, it's obviously not enough for sure. But uh, so I'm, I'm still carving and I'm still doing all that other stuff. But I'm enjoying it. I'm, I I got to. I was invited. Ha, I don't know if you guys saw that. I was invited to give a talk at the uh, the uh, OCA, the Orthodox Church of America's uh, Diocese of the South annual assembly. So it's basically this assembly of all these priests and bishops. So there's like hundreds of priests there, 
and they asked me what I wanted to talk about. And so I, I, it was just such a weird thing that they were inviting me that I thought I'm going to give the most provocative title that I can think <laughs> of. And so I said, I'm going to do it on, it's going to be called uh, Pentecost for the zombie apocalypse. <laughs> and, and they just said, they said, yeah, yeah, I'll do that. And so I was like, okay, I guess I'm going to have to write that talk now. And so I wrote, so I wrote, so I wrote this talk about monsters and zombies and, uh, then I found out that I was doing it during the uh, dinner. Which was very <laughs> so I had to adjust some of my imagery as I was that I was projecting on the wall. But uh, but it ended up being bring a lot of fun, and uh, the reaction was quite positive. I talked about Saint Christopher, and about the exception and the importance of leaving room for the exceptional. And uh, I I I mean, obviously, usually people don't tell you when they don't like your talk, but for those that told me, those that engaged with me after and have written me emails since have, have said that, that they appreciated it. So, so I, I've been, it's been fun. It's been a lot of fun. Yeah, it was a great talk. It was, uh, it's been really helpful to me. Is that what you would recommend to somebody checking out your YouTube channel for the first time? Yeah, I'd say, you, yeah, it depends what you're looking for. I mean, obviously, in terms of, 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 of a synthesis of my thought on, on, uh, Christianity and its place in the world today. I would say that's definitely an interesting one to start with. Great. Well, thanks so much for coming on and talking with us about Gremlins. This was a lot of fun to have you back. This is awesome. Yeah, it was fun. Yeah, we should do this again. Think of something something else fun to talk about, and I'll come on anytime. <laughs> awesome. Absolutely. That's great. Well, uh, have a Merry well, Christmas to you and your family. And good, ah, good luck with your podcast and, and all your, you. your crazy wayward activities. <laughs> thanks. And uh, have a Merry Christmas to all of you as well. Thanks, Jonathan. Merry Christmas, Jonathan. Thanks so much. Sure. All right. Thanks. Good night. Have a good night. It's a Christmas song. <laughs>